The scripture reading today is taken from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another goes drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who, are, who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord also what I deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak or heal, and, have, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would help us this morning. We thank you that you've already shown us how much you are for us and how much you help us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit. We're not alone. As we come to your word, you are with us. You are even in us. And Lord, we ask that you would bring conviction when we need conviction, encouragement where we need encouragement, healing where we need healing. Comfort where we need comfort. Lord, would you lift our eyes to see wonderful things in your word as we behold Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're wrapping up uh, chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians with a text that's a little easier than the last one that I preached uh, on um, uh, roles and gender differences and all those things at the beginning of chapter 11. So I'm grateful for that. Um, and it's actually going to be our last sermon in the series in 1 Corinthians all the way till September. So next week, we're going to begin a new four-week series before we jump into Psalms for the summer. And the four-week series will be a series about the church. It's going to be called We Are the Church. And we do this frequently. We usually have, you may have noticed if you've been here long enough, kind of a church focus in June for a few weeks. And we're going to be doing that again. Uh, but now we're in this last section, this last part of chapter 11. And I actually think that this is maybe the high point 
of all of the rebukes that Paul has so far given to the Corinthians uh, in 1 Corinthians. It's really a high point in the rebuke that he has given them so far. And he rebukes them because their communion practices, their practice and observance of the Lord's Supper, it looked nothing like Jesus who they were remembering. Nothing like Jesus who they were remembering to their shame. It's a shame I think that we can all relate to, though, on the surface. A shame that comes from the hypocrisy of saying one thing and supposing to be looking like Jesus on the one hand and then failing to look like him on the other. After all, what's more embarrassing for Christians and for churches today than when followers of Jesus fail to look like the Jesus they worship? And this kind of hypocrisy is why so many people, and I'm sure friends of yours or people you've tried to share the gospel with at different times, have said things to you like this. You know, Jesus, I don't mind. It's the Christians that I have a problem with. Jesus, I don't mind, but the Christians, they're the ones that I'm not so good with. And of course, it isn't just in the church, as if this is the only place in the world where selfishness and sin get a hold of human beings. It's not just in the church where our selfishness causes us to do things to our own advantage and to the disadvantage of others in ways that are remarkably unloving of others. It's not the only place that happens in this world. The problem is that in the church of all places, it shouldn't be this way. In the church, we are the body of Jesus. Because as a church, we are the people that are filled with the one spirit of Jesus. Because in the church, we have been given the life of Jesus. This hypocrisy, this, this failure to, to, to look like the Jesus we worship that brings shame, it's a hard thing. I think it's caused a lot of pain, probably even here in this congregation. So I don't know your story this morning. I don't know what your history is, whether you've been hurt by somebody in the church, or whether you're just so aware of your own hypocrisy and sobered and grieved by it that you don't know where you can go for help. But I do know that for those who've been grieved by division and by hypocrisy and by sin, that there's hope for us in this passage this morning. Because in this passage, we're going to see a gracious and a good Savior who forgives sin, who heals wounds, and who can change us to become like him by the power of his Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at now at what Paul says in this deepest and sternest of rebukes to the Corinthians. We're going to look at three points. Trouble at the table, the union in communion, and how to discern the body. Trouble at the table, the union in communion, and how to discern the body. So look at our first point. We'll jump in right away. Trouble at the table in verses 17 to 22. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. See, Paul rebukes the Corinthians so sternly here. And he rebukes them for their practice of communion, for what he calls here the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper or communion are just two names for the same thing. They refer to the way that we practice as a church, the eating and the drinking of bread and wine or juice in in our situation here with our little COVID-friendly packets. We do that as this practice of remembering and worshiping and delighting in the fact that Jesus Christ gave his body and his blood for us so that we could truly live. Remember that his death on our behalf brings us life with God. We've been reconciled to God. And we still do this today. We do it every Sunday. You'll see in a moment that we will have communion this morning or the Lord's Supper this morning. But you probably noticed in this passage of the communion Paul describes that it looks a little bit different from our communion practices on Sunday morning. Look at verse 21 again. For in eating, Paul says, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And if you've been here before during communion, you realize that, that the wafers are not enough to be a full meal, that, that nobody is bringing their, their full meal in their backpacks here this morning, although I bring some snacks usually to try to sustain myself. Maybe you do as well. You notice that Paul doesn't talk about ushers or gluten-free options. You notice that the little packets of juice that we have, uh, if they were wine, certainly aren't big enough to get drunk from. It's very different. Something's going on that's different in this passage. And in the practice of the early church, this is what was going on. When the the church began this celebration, it was not just a a, a practice like the one that we have. It was a shared meal. And in these shared meals, there'd be a time of specific thanksgiving to God for the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And it wasn't until a little bit later, only a very little bit later, by the way, in the history of the church, that that a more formalized practice of communion, like the one that we have today, began to be practiced on the regular. And the problem that Paul addresses was that these meals were going on, and at these meals there were problems. Such problems that they caused more harm than good. I don't know if you've been to a church that has been so messed up that you could have someone legitimately say, you know what, your gatherings cause more harm than good. It's a significant rebuke. They're causing more harm than good because they were bringing division between the haves and the have-nots in the church. Look at verses 18 and 21. Paul writes, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. You have to remember that back in Corinth, it was a very stratified city and, and wealth and ethnicity and social status played a huge role in this community and in this church. So the situation was probably something like this. Those who had wealth and social standing and large homes would share those things for the Lord's Supper and in communion with those that were like them. They eat the best food. They drink a lot of the best wine. 
But the poor, those of low class, would go without and wouldn't be permitted to share in the feasting that was going on. If you're from a culture that is maybe more obviously socially and and ethnically stratified than ours is, you might have a bit of a sense of what this would look like in the church. A church where you have clear distinctions of this church is for this group of people, or this church is for this group of people, or there's a clear division. You know, these people sit on this side, these people sit on that side. If you're from our culture, the West of Vancouver, and you're struggling to figure out what this might look like, think of Downton Abbey. Think of, of English class divisions, right? Where, where after, only after, the servants came upstairs to serve the best things to those of wealth and of status and of means, where they then go down and eat privately, excluded by themselves from what was left over. Just imagine if that would happen here at this church. Can you imagine if when you came to the Lord's Supper, we divided out as a church based on our economic wealth, our, our, our ethnic divisions, maybe younger or older, or status in our society, and that, that we would then be excluding one another at the Lord's table and creating these divisions and, and bitternesses and heartaches and humiliating one another, humiliating those who, who have nothing, who were poor. See, in the ancient Corinth, the results were horrible. It led to humiliation of the poor and those who had nothing. I'm sure it led to deep resentments. Clearly, it led to exclusions and divisions that brought shame on the name of Jesus in that place. And this meal that was all about Jesus looked nothing like Jesus. So Paul utterly rebukes them. In these verses, he refers to their gathering together. They're gathering together three times. It's remarkable, though, that he refuses to call it the Lord's Supper. They gather together. They don't have communion. And three times, he has nothing good to say about them. In verse 17, he says, your gathering is for the worse, not the better. In verse 18, he says, your gatherings lead to division. It's an interesting point there, by the way. He says, some of that's necessary. He goes on in verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Grace there's an encouragement here, I think. I think sometimes we look at, at the brokenness that happens in the church and divisions that happen in the church and bad things that happen in the church, and we only see bad. Paul sees a little good in it. Because what happens is that that serves to highlight the quiet, genuine faithfulness of God lived out in the lives of real Christians. That's a good thing. That's a good thing that God uses to to help the true church to be seen in their faithfulness to Jesus. So he says, not for the better, but for the worse, leads to the vision, verse 18. Then he says in verse 20, actually, your gathering isn't even the Lord's Supper. He says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat because it is neither true communion with God and certainly not true communion with one another. It's none of those things. So it can't be the Lord's Supper, which is supposed to be about both of those things. You can feel Paul's indignation in verse 22. What? <laughs> I don't know how to read that. I feel like I'm, I'm a, trying to be an actor or something and, and read it in the right voice. 
but you got to get into the, you got to get into the pathos, into the feeling of Paul is, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? Do you hate Jesus church? You humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And there's trouble clearly at the Corinthian table. And Paul rebukes them soundly because their communion practices, their Lord's Supper, created division where that whole communion was meant to encourage the most profound unity of all. So look at our second point and the union and communion to show you what I'm talking about. And we're first not going to look at chapter 11, but we're going to turn back to chapter 10 and verse 16 to 17. Because sometimes at Christ City Church, the reality is that we preach long sermons on short passages. And when you preach long sermons on short passages, you forget that the passage that we're in is connected to what came before and actually would have just been read in one sitting as a letter letter in the original uh, place that it was received. So let's go back to only a, a few pages before, a few words before the Corinthians would have heard in chapter 10, verses 16 to 17. And there Paul said this about communion. To the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? There's beautiful things happening when we have the Lord's Supper and we have communion every Sunday. So we take the cup, we take the bread, we're remembering, we are remembering together that all of us are united in Jesus. That all of us participate, are sharers of, are fellowshippers of the body that Jesus gave for us. See, the salvation message that we teach, the gospel that we teach here at Christ City, that that the church has historically taught, is that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. We're saved by trusting in him for our salvation, period. But sometimes I think we don't realize how much of a miracle happens when we put our faith in Jesus. See, the faith that we have in Jesus is the beginning of this miracle of becoming one with Jesus, of being united together in Jesus, so much so that it's kind of like in the marriage where the two become one flesh. And when we put our faith in Jesus and become one with him, it happens that, that his death now counts as our death. We've died to sin. The punishment of sin that we deserve is on Jesus and it's over and finished because we've been united with him. It's like we died. And then we've been united with Jesus in his death so that as he's raised to new life, we are one with Jesus, united in Jesus Christ so that his resurrection is at work as he pours out his Holy Spirit into our lives, raising us right now in this church to new life. And it's happening. It's happening in you. And it's going to continue to happen in you until that same union with Jesus is completed and you're raised from the dead one day and forever will dwell with God. We're united with Jesus. When we take the bread and the cup together as one church, we declare together that we are united by faith to Jesus Christ. And our communion declares not just union with Jesus, but at the same time, it declares our union with one another. 
Because we, the church corporately, have been united to Jesus' one body. We, the church together, are now the body of Jesus. Paul taught this. Paul taught this. It's, it's something that he was big on in his writing. And in fact, he makes a really big deal about our union together as a church united to Jesus in the very next chapter that we'll get into in September. But we're going to jump ahead because you won't remember when September comes. Look at chapter 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one, the body, whose body? Jesus' body. The church. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. See, this human body is this beautiful illustration that Paul and the power of the Holy Spirit gave to us to help us to understand what it means to be united. And I think that we need this today because there's something that's at war with what the Bible teaches happening in this church, and it's the individualism of our culture. Because our culture teaches you, and just know this, know this, this is the air that you breathe. You hardly think about it because it's everywhere around you. It teaches you that your decisions in life are yours only. It teaches you that the things that you do, that the actions that you pursue, what you buy, how you live, your recreation, that it's all just yours. That all that you need to think about is you. And in the church, it's not to be that way. In the church, we're to be like a human body. And the human body doesn't have a hand that's independent from the arm. Fighting the arm, trying to figure out how it can get its own and just do its own thing. The human body doesn't have one eye that lives selfishly just saying, I'm going to look right, okay? And, and the other eye is saying, I'm going to look left, right? And you constantly have this splay-eyed person. I don't know if, that, if that's a thing. Sarah, is that right? I don't know how to say I'm looking to the person who knows eyes in the congregation. Um, I, might, it wasn't, it was, I don't even know what to say. Optometrist, ophthalmologist. I don't know which one. Sorry, Sarah. Uh, now there's a sermon recording all about ophthalmology. Um, I apologize. Um, let's get back on course here. <laughs> but the point is that the human body is supposed to work together in unity for a common purpose. And our common purpose as a church is to glorify the Lord in all that we do. And in communion, when we take the bread and we take the cup, we're remembering the remarkable union that we have, yes, with Jesus, but also that we are one body, the church. And Paul rebukes the Corinthians because they were incredibly divided exactly where they ought to have been united. And he rebukes them for another reason too, because this Jesus that they were united to lived his life in a particular way. And if it's true that we've been united with Jesus, then that ought to show in our own lives as we live like him. It's why Paul, after his rebuke, wrote the words that Matt preached on last week and what we read this morning. I'll read them again for you right now, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, Paul says all of this because he wants us to know how important it is that we see that Jesus gave his body for us. So there's a principle here that's happening as we're united to Jesus, that we're to live a certain way, that as we come to the table each morning, that we are formed a little bit more to be like the Jesus who gave his body and shed his blood as a sacrifice, not just for himself, but for our benefit. It's to come to the table to remember that Jesus loves you, Christ City. That he gave up his life to die for you, that he takes all the sorrow and the horrors and the bitterness of your own sin into himself on that cross. That he stands in your place and receives the judgment of God in your place and for your sins that you deserved. So he could welcome you to himself so you could be received into relationship and fellowship with God. It's all about you being brought and welcomed to God. There's something profound going on in the Lord's Supper. It's a proclamation every week of union with Jesus. Jesus, who's the kind of God who welcomes the least deserving to his table. He shows us this in his life. So you want to know what God's like? You need to look at Jesus in the Bible. Because Jesus is fully God and he shows us what God is like. And when we look at Jesus' life, we see he wasn't the kind of man who said, hey, sorry guys, I'm going to hang out with the nobles and the kings and those that have wealth. He's the kind of God who welcomed those who were naturally speaking furthest from him. Let's look at Matthew 9, verses 10 to 13. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For, I'm, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, there is no one more holy and perfect than Jesus. And there is no one more distant from him, naturally speaking, than the sinners that he pursued with a loving welcome. In Christ City, you are the sinners he's welcomed. He's welcomed you. If you've trusted in Jesus to save you, he's welcomed you. He pursued you with his love. Zephaniah chapter 3 is about you, that he rejoices over you with singing. Not because he cheers for the same sports team that you have, not because Jesus has the same social standing that you do. Not because you have a common interest or ethnicity or culture that you happen to share with Jesus. 
but because of the generosity of God who welcomes to himself the least likely and the least deserving. And he showers them with blessing upon blessing upon blessing. That's what grace is. The undeserved, unmerited showering and lavishing of God's grace on those who were furthest from him. Paul is really excited about this in the Bible. And in his letter to the church that was in Ephesus, letter to the Ephesians, he writes in chapter 1, verses 7 to 10, and you can feel, you can hear the, the praise and the joy dripping off of the end of his pen as he says these words. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished. Lavish is a big word. It's not a little bit. It's this extraordinary, outrageous generosity that God has poured out on us, that he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. See, what the world sees about Jesus and catches a glimpse of about Jesus and what they admire about Jesus is this outrageous generosity and love. And it's the failure of us as a church to do the same thing that brings such shame on us as a community. And it's why Paul had to teach the Corinthians that they must welcome one another in unity and their communion celebration. So turn to our last point with me, how to discern the body in verses 27 to 32. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, to be clear, there's a lot of, there's a lot of struggle that we have, I think, with these verses. And, and to be clear, Paul is not saying that it's possible to somehow accidentally take communion in an unworthy way and, and then feel the judgment of God. He's not saying that if you don't have the right ritual or the right sort of observance or don't say the right kind of incantation beforehand that somehow it's going to work out to your judgment. That's not what Paul's talking about. In communion, like everywhere else in our Christian faith, we're saved one way. By faith in Jesus. By trusting that Jesus can and will save me when I trust him and turn to him. That's how we're saved. So it's not that. No, eating and drinking in an unworthy way is this. It has to do with eating and drinking the generous welcome of God for us, for me personally, while at the same time not welcoming those around me. I'll receive the generosity and the love of God for me, but that's as far as it goes. I'm not extending it to other people. That's what Paul says is eating and drinking in an unworthy way that brought judgment in Corinth. And it's why Paul writes verses 28 to 29 and he says, let a person examine himself then. Communion can be a time of repentance to, to think 
not just about your personal private sins, but about how you're doing in relationship with other people in this church. Let him examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What body must we discern? This body. The body of Christ that we're part of. That means that we must eat and drink conscious that I am one who's been united to Jesus with my brothers and sisters as one body. And I must be conscious of that and think about that and be careful then to repent of the ways that I am divided with my brothers and sisters. The ways where I've been selfish towards my brothers and sisters. The ways that, that my life looks nothing like the welcome of Jesus that I have received so generously from God. See, our gravest sins as a church are when we are willing to receive God's forgiveness and mercy and welcome for ourselves and refuse to extend them to others. Jesus is really clear about this. Matthew 6, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, he says, look, if you don't forgive others your trespasses, your father won't forgive you. Tells the parable of the unforgiving servant and the way that, that he's had this enormous debt forgiven. And then he's like, I'm not forgiving that guy the 20 bucks. And he's thrown into prison until he has to pay every last piece back. It's also why Jesus was so clear about loving our enemies. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. When Jesus says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, he's saying so that you might be like your Father in heaven. His ancient sons did what their fathers did. They looked like their fathers. And even today, you can see family resemblance in children of their parents. And in communion, we're reminded of our family, the one that we belong to, and that our Father has loved and welcomed us when we were his enemies so that we would be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit little by little in our lives to become like him. So we would bear his family resemblance as a church together. And I realize, friends, I realize that not every church has looked like the beloved some. That some, some in history have looked more like the black sheep. I realize that there are problems that we can point to and ways where Christians have lived in unrepentant and, and horrible sin. But I also want to encourage you, though there are many examples of churches that have failed to live like Jesus in shocking ways, at the same time, there are innumerable other quiet churches living faithfully in communion, faithful in community with one another and with God, loving others and welcoming others in the normal, kind of boring, faithful ways that God works by his Holy Spirit in the life of his people. In the long history of his church, Jesus has been doing this remarkable thing with the imperfect people that make up imperfect churches. As they turn to him again and again in repentance and trusting in Jesus, he uses them. 
He brings union and unity and love and life into this world through those churches. We saw that in the ancient world because in these churches, you would have had slaves and masters together in the same church welcoming one another. You would have had, in many cases, slaves who would have been the elders over their masters in the ancient world. And masters even submitting to their slaves within the church. You would have had men and women for the first time welcomed as equal in the history of the world, in the church. Fully equal in Christ, like Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You had in this ancient church that was in a world that was full of ethnic division and incredible hatreds, you had Greek and Arab and Egyptian and barbarian Europeans and North Africans all overcoming ancient hatreds and welcoming one another in Jesus. And today, despite all the failures that you see in the church, the failures that you read on the news and see about around you, this is happening in innumerable faithful churches around you. These people are welcomed and loved and cared for in remarkable ways. So Christ City, what about us? How are we doing here? Do we welcome one another as God has welcomed us? Just think for a moment. Is there a group of people in your life that you avoid or disdain? Maybe the rich. Maybe the poor. Maybe those who are suffering. Do you tend to avoid people who have different cultures than yours? Not just different ethnicities, because in a global city like Vancouver, things get blurry. We might be different ethnically and have similar cultures. But do you avoid people when the, when the demarcations of that culture are just so different than yours, it's frustrating to you? Or do you welcome them? Do you tend only to love and to show grace and mercy and to reach out to those that are the same as you? They're like me and I want to spend all my time with, with just those people. Do we avoid those who aren't cool or attractive? Do we tend to just be with those that we have common interests that we share with those people? Uh, do we stratify in terms of age? Do we avoid those that are older or avoid those that are younger? You know, Christ City, we can ask ourselves these questions, but I want to share with you that as a pastor in this church, I'm really, really encouraged by what I see happening by the Spirit in Jesus. Because when I look at you, I see a church that is growing to love one another. And then there's remarkable ways that, that I see and I hear stories weekly of people that are crossing pretty enormous natural social barriers to spend time together, to love one another. It's so encouraging to me. And I want to speak a word to the few of you that are going to hear something like this and a challenge to be more welcoming. And you're going to think, okay, now the whole burden of hospitality for the whole church is on my shoulders. I want to remind you, you are one member of a church. That means you have your part to play and no one else's. You shouldn't feel the weight of trying to do everything for everyone else. We are all to be the welcoming members of Christ's body, sharing the members, 
sharing the welcome of Jesus. And all of us have different capacities, different life stages, different realities that we face in our lives that, that might limit the scope of what we're able to do. And actually, the question that we should ask ourselves far before, hey, what should I do? is to take a look in our own hearts and, and think what's going on in my own heart. Because hospitality and welcome is a heart thing. It's a hard thing. I'm going to ask you, is there any area in your heart that prevents you from welcoming someone here into relationship with you? I think that's the barrier that must be repented of. That's the barrier that I think, if you don't repent of it, will be eating and drinking condemnation without discerning the body. So let me encourage you, go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Repent. Ask for forgiveness where it's needed and come to the table. Because if we don't, Paul says there's judgment. Look at verses 29 to 31. It says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. This is incredible to me. Paul says that when the Corinthians failed to welcome one another, God sent his judgment. That ought to be sobering for us. I think that alone ought to lead us to repentance in this area. And if we've put our trust in Jesus Christ, we can be confident that when we repent, that, that even when God judges us, he does not condemn us. Even when he judges us, it's for our good so we would become more like Jesus. Look at the mercy of God that Paul talks about in verse 32. He says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. These verses have been a sweet comfort to me this week. Because nobody here in this church is sinless. And let me tell you, least of all me. And as we live our lives and the, the years kind of pile on, I think it's true, even at 35, that, that you can start to, to see the failures and see the sin and, and see the ways that that your sin hurts and causes problems and is destructive. You can get crushed under the weight of all your failures. And that we ought to grow to be more like Jesus. The reality is that sometimes we don't in some areas. But God is the sort of God who is so committed to the good of his children that even the judgments he sends aren't to condemn us. They're to discipline us. Isn't that beautiful? And discipline's good. We know that in our culture, right? We need discipline to eat healthy, discipline to exercise, discipline to not spend all night watching Netflix and playing video games, discipline to pursue things that are actually good for us in our lives. And God's discipline is even better than any of those things because he disciplines us so that we would turn away from everything that keeps us from the fullness of life that is exclusively in Jesus. So we would know more of his grace and more of his love. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 6 and 10 to 11. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines, hear this Christ city, the one he loves. 
and he chastises every son whom he receives. For our earthly fathers discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. You know, of all the reasons to be a Christian this morning, this has got to be near the top. Because everyone likes to throw around empty platitudes when, when things go bad, right? Like, oh, you know, I'm sure it'll work out for the better. <laughs> right? This miserable thing's happening. It's, I'm sure it's all going to work out. You know, it's going to be for something greater. And, and, and you know, this is, this is what it's going to be. But what assurance does anyone have outside of the love of God for us in Jesus that any of our suffering will work out for our good? This is the exclusive ter territory of the Christian for those who are in Christ, even Corinthians who are full of idolatry, sexual immorality, wild and wicked division in their church, for them, God is a loving father who uses all things for good. He's using every ounce of his omnipotent power to affect good in their lives and in our lives, even when in our sin, we are so aware we have made this wild ugly mess of things. So let me encourage you, don't be shy of taking communion because of the judgment of God. He disciplines those he loves. So come to him in faith in Jesus. Come to him trusting that God's mercies are new every morning. Come to him trusting that his faithfulness is great. Paul concludes this passage in verses 33 to 34. He says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Be unified. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Christ City, this isn't a perfect church. How could it be? It has you and me in it. But Vancouver doesn't need a perfect church. Vancouver needs a church full of honest people. Honest sinners who know that we have a gracious and a loving Savior. Honest Christians who run to Jesus to be welcomed by God in our sin. You see, when we are those kinds of people worshiping and celebrating how much God has loved us and all the honesty and the brokenness that we are, how will that not change us? If we've received that welcome, how could we possibly withhold welcome from others? Would you pray with me? Father, we need your help. And we thank you that you give it. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you loved us even when we were still sinners. So much that you sent Jesus to die for us that we could have life. So God, we ask, would you cause us to become the kind of people that have so received your love for us that we 
shine your light brilliantly in Vancouver. So that we become to be changed to spread and to shout and to show off the goodness of the God that we serve and to glorify you through our good deeds of welcome and hospitality in Vancouver. We ask this for the glory of your name. Amen.